Chapter 12, Part 1 of Six Women and the Invasion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Six Women and the Invasion by Gabrielle Yurta and Marguerite Yurta. Chapter 12, Part 1. After eight months' hopeless waiting, after long weeks spent in a flutter of expectation, we had seen the gate of delivery closed upon us. The others were gone, they were free, and Genevieve and I alone still bore the yoke of invasion, which no one loathed as much as we did. No one had more eagerly wished for freedom, longed to return home, and yearned to meet again those we loved, and alone we stayed behind. The poor girl thought that she would die of despair rather than of illness, and while she moistened her pillow with tears, I hid my sobs in the attic. Madame Charvet took care of Genevieve and did her best to comfort us both. We did not follow the prescriptions of the German doctor, and never once applied cold compresses. A French matron's experience is at times worth more than the learning of a Teutonic physician. We applied mustard poultices and cupping glasses. We gave the patient hot tisane and syrups, which were all the better because they were made in the village. On the 4th of June, three weeks after the convoy's departure, we arrived at Morney's station in the care of a sergeant. My sister-in-law was still a convalescent, and we trudged along to the bureau, where our guardian handed over his prisoners. Thus we were restored to liberty. We were no longer emigrants, and with beating hearts we went back home. On seeing us, my mother-in-law Yvonne and Colette well-nigh turned into stone. They thought we had been in Paris for two months at least. We returned to our old habits. Five women were again under the same roof, five women in the midst of invasion. One only had succeeded in escaping. No change for the better in the village. A single detail amused us. The soldiers of the line lived as before in a white house at the corner of the street. For a long time one of its stout occupants, perched on a ladder, taking great pains and putting out his tongue, had formulated this wish in big black letters, God punish England. And now, on account of recent events, the painter had added in a fit of rage, and the devil run away with Italy. The hussars of the farm were gone, Bouillot at their head, and that day the village had heaved a deep sigh. As a last theft, the Pandours had carried away a cart full of furniture, in order to make themselves comfortable in the trenches which would shelter them. On the other hand, two convoys were still quartered within our gates, and troops of passage were now and then billeted upon us. We gave hospitality to a young lieutenant who had succeeded Bubenpeck as commandant. He lodged in the two rooms we had abandoned to the Prussians with a heavy heart. He had requisitioned, besides, the small room for his servant and the stable for his horse. Gracius and Personet, shut up in a corner of the coach-house, would gladly have seen the Prussian mare dead, which had usurped their domain. We, too, bore a grudge against the fat Hans, who encumbered our rooms with his person, his pipes, and his clothes. 
So, resigned to fate, we established ourselves in the drawing-room, Genevieve and I. One of the windows looks into the street, and when, behind the lace of our curtains, we saw, hour after hour, day after day, the same carts loaded with straw, the same placid-looking Prussians, they are all alike, the same stiff and sneering lieutenants, we might have believed our stay in Jouville had been but a dream. The invaders seemed more at home than ever. The officers enjoyed themselves according to rule. Of course they had not waited for the spring to lead a jolly life. As early as November, 1914, they had had drunken revelries. What merry evenings! What dishes never tasted in Germany! What floods of good wine! What erotic, patriotic, and bacchic songs! Let us drink and eat, for we shall die to-morrow. But no, we shall not die. We, who shout the loudest, we are safe. We do not go to the front. We stay behind, secure from danger. No other task but to grind down, vex, and punish civilians. Let us profit by the war. Joy's the word. There was a festival yesterday at Leon. It will be at Morny to-day. Tomorrow it will be Cousy's turn. Still more revels, still more junketings. It is war. Hurrah for the war! And all enjoyed themselves, those who cared for nothing as well as those who cared first to save their skin, Sybarites as well as sentimentalists, the pompous as well as the dissipated. But this demands an explanation. We had seen many officers of the reserve, the very men whom the Gazette des Ardennes calls the flower of cultured German manhood. But we had discovered few varieties among them, and all of them could be comprised in one of the categories we had created for the purpose. Those who cared for nothing deserve careful consideration. They partook of the qualities common to their brothers-in-arms, which I will extol farther on, but their pusillanimity or their indifference belonged alone to them. Such, for instance, was this lieutenant, quartered in Léon, who confided to everyone willing to listen to him, I don't care a fig for the fate of Germany. If only the war would end soon, and I could get on with my studies, and make myself a good position after, I should be content." Of the same kind was the young commandant of the village, lamed by a fall from his horse. "'The war,' he said, "'what do I care for it? I am unfit for fighting, do you see? I shall neither be killed nor mutilated, and it is all one to me how long the war will last. I have comfortable rooms and get good dinners without untying my purse-strings. I am well paid and able to save.' When we are at peace again, I shall have a jaunt, and then go back to Germany. Men will be rare, and I shall marry whom I choose, the richest girl I can hear of, of course. My future is assured, and so I am quite easy in my mind. We thought still more disgusting those who first cared for their skin. We were pleased to observe not a few cowards who strove with feet hand and purse to avoid danger and keep behind the line love of life self-esteem a dislike for bloodshed and a natural dread of blows kept them from the front they thought of but one goal to cling at any price to safety i wrote at any price on purpose 
Several of them boasted they had paid for not being sent to the front. Where, when, how, to whom I do not know. By what mysterious bribery, by what surreptitious palm-greasing other people will perhaps establish. The truth of such things is not easy to ascertain. I can only state that two officers and a sergeant, belonging to different regiments, told those in whose houses they lodged, one in Léon, the other in Morny and Jouvie, that they had paid from four thousand francs to six thousand francs to get leave to keep out of danger's way. Thus they obtained a few months' respite, after which they had to pay again or endanger their lives. When we were at Jouvie, a stout sergeant, nicknamed Tripe, well-nigh died of an apoplectic stroke on hearing he was ordered to go to the front. I have paid four thousand francs to be exempted from fighting. I thought the war wouldn't last so long, and now I have no money left. Mad with rage, he dashed his helmet right across the room, and this martial attribute was picked up with its point all awry. As to private soldiers, who told their hosts they had acted in the same way, I will not even try to count them. They are too many. The other officers owned a certain number of qualities in common. According to the individuals, one of these characteristics eclipsed the others, and the dominant feature helped us to classify the fools. Of the sentimentalists, Herr Mayer was the best specimen— his eyes cast upon the blue sky, he murmured his regrets in a voice broken by tears. His wife, so many griefs, and so many dead. How dreadful is war! If only we could make a holy alliance of the peoples. I must say that Herr Mayer kept his sensibility in his pocket, and took it out only at dessert. In the discharge of his duties he forgot this faculty completely. The pompous officers were more entertaining. Such was a certain cavalry officer, who, at the end of September, put up for a few days at Monsieur Launay's. His name ended in ski. He twirled his mustachio after the Polish fashion, and drew himself up most elegantly. Once upon a time he happened to go through the drawing-room, where Genevieve was talking with Madame Launay. The surprise sent a thrill through him. "'Why, two pretty women! Quick, let us show off!' And the braggart began to hold forth in praise of Germany. "'Ah, mesdames, the Emperor is extremely satisfied with the march of our army. Our gallant soldiers laugh at obstacles, and advance as if by miracle.' This speech was made shortly after the Battle of the Marne. Unfortunately the hearers, as well as the orator, were unacquainted with the event, which, had they known of it, would have given yet more meaning to the gentleman's discourse. The same Rittmeister could not refrain from delivering high-sounding addresses to all whom he met. In case of need, he even fell back on the man who split the wood, or the maid of all work. "'Have you seen,' he would say, "'have you seen our splendid imperial guard? Have you noticed the gait of our soldiers?' Do you know that no troops in the world are to be compared with them? And for a revictualling cart that rattled by, for a soldier's shirt drying on a hedge, he would pour forth his soul in dithyrams on Germany's greatness, invincibility, and might. 
you will think no doubt that the first and foremost soldier of the prussian army the supreme chief of our enemy would take his place not without the radiance of a star among his confrères of pomposity another pompous talker a sub-lieutenant and former law student lodged in the spring of nineteen fifteen at madame lantois he set up for a linguist and wanted us to believe he knew french better than we once i brought him a demand note to sign he carped at a word i used i tried to defend my prose but he stopped me with a motion of his hand i know the word and how to use it i had nothing to do but hold my tongue so i did like one thunderstruck unfortunately the eloquent rascal took it into his head to turn his stay in france to account are we to suppose he thought he would thus acquire a few niceties of speech of which he was ignorant nobody knows but he was often to be seen seated in the big kitchen devoutly listening to the conversation of the workers to the stories of the old people of the farm to whom madame lantois spoke sharply when they lingered too long the lieutenant knew how to listen how to learn how to remember what he heard for one day we heard him say thumping his fist on the table je savions ce que je disions among our guests were a great many sybarites is barbu's love of creature comforts still remembered and the many cushions necessary to uphold his person can you imagine that some of them before choosing their room felt the elasticity of the mattresses tried the softness of the blankets inspected the fineness of the sheets are the nice afternoon naps already forgotten we are at war but that is no reason to give up comfort let us have carpets and cushions wadding and down we are sybarites the category to which we come now the brutes is the most scandalously celebrated the present war has been its triumph i must say we never saw these gentlemen at their best such as they showed themselves in assaults in pillage in massacre in arson we did see them as brutes in their treatment of a peaceful submissive terrified population brutes who thought they had drawn in their claws we for instance was a beautiful specimen of the kind but we saw many another for instance there was the hero who had a small boy of jouvie bound fast to a post during an icy cold afternoon there was that other who knocked down the shepherd boy of aulnois and gave him a good horse-whipping the poor boy had gone beyond the frontier of the commune with his cattle what am i to do he said my master's meadow is in vives i must feed my flock and at the office they won't give me a pass they say i don't want one to go those few steps i should never finish telling the high deeds of those scoundrels and i have still to sing the praises of the revellers they were many in number and i think more dangerous than the rest they came to france allured by the depravity they attributed to us and it was they who brought to us their vices particularly those exclusive to their race on which i had rather not insist no doubt they thought that they would do a pious work in helping to pervert a country which they hated be that as it may they eagerly exerted themselves to this end and did their best to transform the country behind the front into a vast brothel 
Of course such creatures had not the least respect for the house which sheltered them. An old lady in mourning was deeply shocked at being forced to provide two fast girls of Léon with lodging and board for some days, and many a country house, which had never looked upon other than peaceful scenes, was scared at revels, the noise of which made the very window-panes tremble. Bubenpeck was a remarkably vicious specimen. A bottle of champagne was never emptied in the province without his presence. He was at every feast. He took part in every rejoicing. He rarely came home before two or three o'clock in the morning. He had a pretty taste in wine and nice dinners. Besides, he looked upon himself as Don Juan, and expected everyone to yield to him. No thought hindered his caprices. One day he asked a young girl publicly to come and see him in his rooms. Another day we saw him towards dusk kiss two loose girls in the open street. To be at perfect liberty he sent to prison, under some pretense or another, a man whose daughter he was paying court to. He inscribed among the women inspected by the police the name of a young girl who, though not very respectable, had done no harm but reject his advances. With real Gallic humor, our good villagers were careful to catalogue the great deeds of our guests, chiefly when heroines from the other side of the Rhine came upon the scene. One Sunday morning about ten o'clock, there appeared at our house a little German nurse of the Red Cross dark-haired, smart, and, a fact hardly to be believed, pretty. But the lady had a peevish air, an air only. Lieutenant Bubenpeck? Out. With all possible speed, the orderly went to fetch the officer. Bubenpeck came back as fast as he could, shut himself up with the little dame, and did not move until four o'clock in the afternoon, forgetful of his lunch. And the orderly, who timidly presented himself for duty, was roughly sent away from the closed door. "'Oh!' said Madame Valaine, shocked. "'Such impudence! In my house!' The neighbors made jokes and watched the door. They even laid wagers. "'They will come out. They won't.' At last the couple came out, and disappeared on foot towards Léon. A moment after, a murmur was heard. "'What does it mean?' To show his disregard of decency, Bubenpeck had thrown his window wide open before going out, and now the whole village gathered about our windows and jeered at the shameless disorder of the room and bed. So while some officers clearly belonged to such and such a category, they all possessed to a certain degree the qualities peculiar to the other classes, but there were real mongrels among them. For instance, you can imagine for yourself a sentimental fine talker and a sybarite who cared for his skin, or a brutish reveller, and there was a sameness in all, a family resemblance. Prussian militarism, hypocrisy, and haughtiness were smeared over them all, like a thick coat of paint. All showed an extreme satisfaction with their own race and person. In short, you have but to scratch the Prussian to find the barbarian. Should an opportunity offer, or even no opportunity, they can all be unreasonable, harsh, unrelenting. These gentlemen enjoyed themselves. In a physical sense, you can easily picture to yourself those revelers. They were not handsome, 
At least we never came across one we thought handsome, in spite of our efforts to be impartial. Save Bouillot, we never saw a very tall one. They were either long and thread-like, or short and fat. Those who thought they had a look of Apollo you might reproach with thick wrists and ankles, large hips, and heavy feet. Most of them had shapely hands, and very often well-kept nails. Their features were unpleasing from being shockingly irregular or freezingly regular. Their hard eyes belied the false kindness of their smile. At a distance, their stiff and starched gait, their mechanical movement, at close quarters, their voice, their smell, their whole being made us bristle with hostility. For a trifle we would have snarled at them like a dog, and every day their presence lay heavier on our hearts. Their smell! Some people deny its reality. Let them go to the north of France. When you have lodged Prussian officers, very clean people, no doubt, you may air the room eight days running, and it will not lose the smell, sui generis, which impregnates it, and every inhabitant of the village, from the mayor down to the smallest child, would turn up his nose on entering the room and say, Fah! It smells of Prussians here! Such as they were, the gentlemen amused themselves. Some maintained even that they made conquests. I am touching here on a very delicate subject, the relations between the invaders and the women of the invaded countries. There has been much talk of rape. Compared with the crimes committed in Belgium and in Lorraine, the misdeeds we shall mention are but little things. To be sure, there were rapes, but thanks be to God, they were few and they took place at the beginning of the invasion, chiefly after the Germans' retreat on the Marne. In Jouville I heard many a sad story. There was the story of a young woman of Chevreny who went mad after her misfortune, and of several old women too. For hardly credible as it seems, old women often fall victims to acts of violence, because they lacked agility to run away. At Bray, several soldiers fell upon a woman of eighty, knocked her down, and beat her most unmercifully. At Chamouille, in October 1914, a few women were living in a cellar, frightened to death. One evening, one of them told me, we heard a loud cry. There was a falling of stones, and a young woman tumbled down into the cellar through a shell hole. Thus she escaped from her pursuers, but her companion, an old woman of sixty-eight, fell defenseless into the hands of the filthy fellows. Ah, we had many proofs of the respect the Germans have for old age. A woman of Cerny, eighty-seven years old, small and white-haired, with red eyes and a shaking head, told us how she had left her lodging. I had a small bundle of clothes ready lying on the table, but the soldiers did not allow me to go in and take it. They beat me. As I didn't go, I had money, too, in my bundle. They forced me to go. They all flocked around me. They were twelve. And how am I to say it? In short, the twelve rascals had driven the poor old woman out of her house by directing towards her that which a famous statue innocently eternalizes in Brussels, stripped of her spare clothes and money, filthy, disgusted at what she had seen. The unhappy woman had to go to a neighbor to beg for a bodice and a petticoat, that she might cast away her soiled clothes. 
when the germans settled themselves upon us these feats of the satyr were no longer common here and there evil deeds were still spoken of and a doctor of the neighborhood told us in the spring of nineteen fifteen that nearly every week there was an act of violence i must confess that many a woman was the victim of her own imprudence when you have lived all your life in a quiet village among kind people you have some difficulty in believing that you must be on your guard for months together that you are forever surrounded with brutes so more than one villager had reason to regret having gone alone to the forest or having persisted in living in a lonely house but the systematic brutalities the collective assaults which marked the beginning were no longer known the method had changed there were acts of violence which were no less terrible for being moral in many a village whose inhabitants suffered hunger the children were provided with bread and soup yes but this privilege was reserved for the children whose mothers showed themselves complacent towards the soldiers and these women accepted dishonor because they could not bear to see their little ones pine away and die while others could not withstand the troubles and vexations that lay in store for good women a cry of reprobation and horror arose when we heard that the conduct of all women was not blameless in the first place there were the women of the lowest class even boule de suif herself would have been tamed after daily relations with the german soldiers of course a few black sheep are a disgrace to the flock and i can fancy women-haters shrugging their shoulders in scorn when they hear of this gently sir a truce to jeering more than one person wearing a beard gave abundant proof of an equal complacence alas traitors were to be found among us for instance there were those who welcomed the germans with a smile and revealed to them the resources of the place there were those the foulest of all who denounced french soldiers hidden in the woods or those who fed the fugitives there were those who for a little money or food pointed out the hiding-places of his neighbors and thus surrendered to the enemy wine grain potatoes even money and jewels but i am pleased to say that such despicable wretches were rare and on the whole the population was proud and dignified and opposed to the invaders dishonesty a solid brotherhood which no troubles no persecutions could lessen or fatigue and yet we led a grievous life the germans seemed to aim at making it as hard as possible while theirs was as merry as can be the winter had been painful but the summer was still more so we had less liberty and less food we were allowed to leave the place we lived in but three times a week and on stated days besides we had to ask for a pass two days beforehand and pay seventy-five centimes for it when it was granted which was not always the case it was almost impossible to go to the country from leon and for weeks together nobody was allowed to leave the town one day passports had been freely given to the people tradesmen mostly who went to marl to buy raw sugar a yellowish sticky substance with a taste of glue and a little butter precious goods that were still to be found there in small quantities they all came back furious at different points of the road level crossings outskirts of villages they had all been arrested 
men and women had been then entirely stripped of their garments and searched according to rule nurses of the red cross and soldiers showed equal zeal in the task which had a practical object the gathering of all gold and even silver coins of five francs which pockets and purses might contain the sum seized it must be said was replaced by notes of the reichsbank the victims thought the joke a very bad one and i am sure thomas of marl's bones must have turned in his grave to think that on this nobleman's own territory soldiers arrested and robbed the passers-by and he was not there to help and what is worse the aggressors were german troopers and the victims good and loyal french citizens what does your shade regret o famous plunderer to be unable to fight for your countrymen or to have no share in the robbery i need not say that after that no gold pieces ever ventured out on the roads a pass also was necessary to go out into the country and you were expected to have an identity card in your pocket if you but stood on your threshold all papers had to be renewed every fortnight fancy an aged woman said to us that i have to pay twenty marks because i forgot my antiquity card one saturday a farmer's wife perched on a ladder out of doors was eagerly polishing the glass of a bull's-eye window two gendarmes on horseback passed by and gave heed to this commendable zeal madame cart hem hem ah yes my identity card wait a minute it is lying on the table ha ha no not enter no card fine so she had to pay the fine one of our neighbors was taking his cows out of the stable suddenly one of them seemed to smell some enlivening odor was it that of powder she bent a frolicsome head on one side lifted up her sprightly nostrils raised a swaggering tail and as fast as she could tear went full gallop towards the meadows the brooklet the rosy horizon where the setting sun pleased her the owner took to his heels in his turn and fled after the giddy pated creature the better to run he tore off his jacket and succeeded in getting hold of the tether then he stopped panting all in a sweat and rapped out a tremendous oath as if by miracle a gendarme happened to stand there his notebook in hand card card ah oh it is in my jacket pocket the jacket was smiling in the distance a small spot lying on the green ach the prussian said with a sneer not fetch fine cost fifty francs rascally cow i treat the matter as a joke sometimes we did joke we could not have our minds always on the stretch we already were half crazy and we should have gone quite mad if we had not occasionally laughed we often laughed with rage with an empty stomach with our brain confused after a troubled night our race needs to laugh in the midst of tears, and tears are shed in secret, whereas laughter bursts forth in public. End of chapter 12, part 1